Well, good morning again. So good to be together. And so Jana already said we're starting a new series today in the Ten Commandments called The Ten Words. Uh, you might be surprised to learn that the Bible never refers to the Ten Commandments as the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? The, uh, the actual Hebrew phrase means the Ten Words, uh, meaning that the Ten Words, the Ten sayings, the ten teachings uh, from God that Moses received on Mount Sinai. Uh, if, you've, if you've been around um, the Christian faith for a little bit, you might have heard Exodus 20 or the Ten Commandments referred to as the Decalogue. That's simply a Greek version of the Hebrew that means ten words. Deca means ten. Logos means word. So ten words. So that's what we're diving into today. Uh, for the next few weeks over the summer. And I'll say more about why we're gonna do this in a little bit, but I thought I would read them for you. We, we won't read the entire 10 commandments before the sermon every week. We'll just be looking at a commandment at a time. Uh, but today I thought we would start by reading all of them. So let me read Exodus 20 verse one through 17 for us. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so right off the bat, I have a, a recognition to give. I want to thank author Jen Wilkin for her excellent book on the Ten Commandments titled Ten Words to Live By. Her chapter headings, her chapter titles were so good that I am using those as sermon titles throughout this series. So undivided allegiance, that phrase belongs to her from her book. So thanks to Jen for that. So why teach the Ten Commandments? All right, as a, as a congregation, we just finished a series in the Gospel of John focusing on Jesus, on God's grace to us, 
in Christ, on, on uh, the way uh, Jesus wants us to respond uh, in faith, you know, uh, have life in his name. So why, why go back to the law? And we're people of grace, right? So why don't we just stay there and not think about law? So why, why study the Ten Commandments at all? Let me, let me give you three. There are probably many reasons, but reasons for teaching and studying the Ten Commandments. Uh, by way of series introduction now, we won't do this every week, right? But just why we're doing this. First, uh, there's a lot of confusion in modern Christianity about the role of the Ten Commandments in the life of a follower of Jesus. Back in 2019, Andy Stanley, the pastor of a big church in, in Atlanta, um, and, and, and I like this guy a lot, but he wrote this in an online magazine. Participants in the new covenant, that's Christians, are not required to obey any of the commandments found in the first part of their Bibles. Participants in the new covenant are expected to obey the single command Jesus issued as part of his new covenant. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And as you might imagine, this triggered a lot of conversation in the, in the Christian world. I, I, I think I know what he's trying to say. He just didn't say it very well, right? Um, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on this because in other things he said wonderful, wonderful things, right? But this idea that the old is gone and the new has come is true, but in a special way. It's not that the old is gone, gone. And G Jesus made this really clear, which we'll focus on a little bit later. He came to fulfill the law, not to do away with it. So there's an important distinction there. So one reason uh, uh, to study is because there's some confusion, but there remains a clear place for God's Ten Commandments, the moral law in the life of a believer. A second reason to think about, study, and teach the Ten Commandments, whenever Christians have thought about how to convey the fullness of the faith to others, we've tended to use three primary resources. The Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. Uh, if, you're, if you're a Reformed Christian, you know that th those three together make up a big chunk of the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, seeking to convey the faith to others. So according to the historic church, looking at the Ten Commandments, studying them and teaching them is considered a best practice for discipling others. So that's one of the reasons we're doing it. And, and third reason of those I'm sharing today, we find ourselves living in a, in a culture that has lost its moral compass. Um, and and this, may, maybe this goes without saying, or maybe, maybe it doesn't in, in your mind, I, I'm not sure. Um, but I would argue that our, our culture is noticeably inconsistent and illogical even in what it claims as a moral code or a, a grid for determining the difference between what is right and, and what is wrong. Uh, and they're just ideas flying around out there, right? Uh, they, were, they were very well illustrated, these kinds of ideas, in, in a book of about eight years ago titled Atheist Mind, Humanist Heart, subtitle, Rewriting the Ten Commandments for the 21st Century. It was written by an executive back then at uh, Airbnb and a humanist chaplain at Stanford University. And they had a very interesting process. They put together their ten what they called non-commandments, and then they kind of crowdsourced it and sent it out to the internet and said, hey, these are our 10 non-commandments. What do you all think? And there's an interesting process there. But in, in the first 10 that they floated to the outside world, they included these. I, I won't read all of them. Um, one of the 10 non-commandments, there is no God. 
another. There is no universal moral truth. Our experiences and preferences shape our sense of how to behave. Another, we act morally when the happiness of others makes us happy. Think about that one for a second. Another, we benefit from living in and supporting an ethical society. So the, they crowdsourced this and they asked the internet to vote, which is always a dangerous idea, <laughs> right? Um, and, and the list was modified a little bit, but it was, it was very close to this. Uh, so from a, from a Western cultural perspective, this list pretty well encapsulates, of course there are six more, the moral code of our culture. The, the authors called them the 10 non-commandments, presumably to avoid forcing their morality on others, uh, but the statements carry a clear moral force of a you should or a you should not, right? Because there is no God, you should not believe in God. Uh, you should not speak against something that makes someone else happy. Uh, so the, the very naming of them as non-commandments, I would argue, is um, a bit deceptive, certainly internally inconsistent, because it carries moral force, but it's called a non-commandment, right? Uh, and then there's a the statement about you know, we're benefited by living in an ethical society. You should support an ethical society, even though there is no universal moral truth upon which to base any system of ethics, around which to gain any agreement as to what an ethical society would look like. Uh, so the, the point is this. Our culture is noticeably inconsistent and illogical, even, in what it claims as a moral code or the, the, the framework by which to discern between right and wrong. As followers of Jesus, we have to remember a couple things here. First, people are not the enemy. I, I don't share this 10 non-commandments thing to somehow demonize the Airbnb exec and the humanist chaplain. People are not the enemy. That is absolutely clear in the Bible. We're called to love people because God loves people and every single human being has been created in the image of God. And Jesus did what he did to invite everybody everywhere home to God. So pe people aren't the enemy. So we got to keep that top of mind all the time, right? And then the second thing is uh, we also have to be aware that there are ideas flying around 24-7. I mean, we're fish in the fishbowl, right? And the water we're swimming in is filled with all of these ideas and claims and wh which, you know, at first glance might seem good to us but when you sit down and actually think about them, like, like the two in the Ten Non-Commandments, there is no universal truth, and we, we should act ethically because we benefit from living in an ethical society. I mean, when you really begin to, to consider them, you realize they don't even represent clear thinking, uh, let alone an effective guide upon which to base your life. Right? I mean, they, they, they fall apart logically. So it, it's just really important... Um, this whole conversation is really important, as it turns out, because there is a universal moral code, or it certainly appears that way, not just to Christians, but even to, to social scientist researchers. In, in his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis titled the first part of the book uh, this way, Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. 
And, and he goes on there to observe that other human beings seem to have some kind of standard of behavior that we expect others to know. And this is revealed in some of the things we say, like, hey, that's not fair. Well, what is fair, right? How do you like it if somebody did the same thing to you? Hey, that's my seat. I was here first. Leave him alone. He's not doing anything to hurt you. I mean, all of those, if you think about it, all of those statements are appealing to some kind of shared understanding, shared value, a higher standard. Uh, or if we want to use different language for it, an ethical code of what is right or what is wrong. Uh, a moral law, a natural law, some might call it. Uh, Lewis then points out that some people will argue that different civilizations in different ages have had different moralities. And, and in some sense that's true, but I mean, he, he details it well. He says, but this is not true. There have been differences between their moralities, but these have never amounted to anything like a total difference. If anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teaching of, say, the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, what will really strike him will be how very like they are to each other and to our own. So there really does seem to be this uh, uh, largely unspoken, but largely cross-culturally agreed to moral code. It's kind of in here already. And, and Christians understand that, right? The Bible speaks of this. The Apostle Paul makes it clear. He, he writes, indeed, when Gentiles meaning non-Jewish people who didn't have the, the law and the prophets. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, here referring specifically to the Ten Commandments, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. So what, this is just Bible language for what you and I experience, right? That we know internally some things are right and some things are wrong. And that we experience the built-in internal monitoring system for that code that exists within us that is called our conscience. And, and sometimes it will accuse us because we have the ability to act against that internal code and do that which we know to be wrong. And when that happens, our conscience says, ding, 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 this is not right, right? Or if we're acting in line with that code, the conscience says, yes, you are, you are functioning as a person of character and of integrity, this is a good thing. So in, um, you know, my wife is a teacher, and in our school, there's a, there are big... Um, uh, there's a moral focus kind of thing. So character development, this, this particular school is not a Christian school, but character development from the Christian sense is about this. It's aligning one's behavior with the law within, right? And of course, when we, when we get to the specific Christian application, there's a lot more detail because Jesus filled things out for us. But character development is about aligning our behavior to the code that's written on our hearts largely, Right? So no matter where we're from, no matter how we were raised, no matter what we believe now, 
God's moral law is written on our hearts and our consciences are in touch with that law. I mean, there is universal truth and that truth is summarized in the Ten Commandments and implanted within us. So over the course of this series, we'll be breaking down each of the ten words, each of the ten commandments, and kind of teasing out how that's planted inside and then also what Jesus said about them, how Jesus fulfilled each of those commandments. So let's look at the first word. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, The other nine commandments, the other nine words deal with things we should do or shouldn't do. Uh, But this first commandment describes the kind of relationship we should have with God. See, back back in that day, back in the ancient world, people had a whole variety of gods. There, there were small g gods everywhere. The god of rain, the god of the field, the god of the forest and the river and the, you know, whatever. And largely the system was based on you piecing together your gods, those, those areas that you wanted to focus on, and you, you would make offerings with the hopes that you would somehow please this god and get something good out of the deal. It was a very transactional kind of, kind of understanding. And, uh, By and large, those religions were easy, self-serving, and back in that day, often self-indulgent. What made this first commandment so different, so controversial? Imagine your way back into that kind of cultural scenario, right? All these small g gods all over the place. And Moses comes down from the mountain, and he says, hey, first commandment, uh, God has asked us to worship him as the one true God and to get rid of all the others. That was completely revolutionary. That idea had never crossed anybody's mind. And, and that, that caused huge tension and friction with the culture around. It was counterculture in every way. Because the first word asks us to worship God to the exclusion of all other gods. See, the command is for undivided allegiance because the claim is unique. The claim is unique. God is saying there is only one supreme being in the universe. And in this commandment, he tells us to worship him alone and have a single allegiance to to God alone. And for that reason, the first word is uh, is foundational for all of the other words uh, because it's it's only uh, because there is one true God that there is a, a universal moral code for all of us. And that's because the lawgiver, the code giver, is a moral being and has values, knows the difference between right and wrong. The Heidelberg Catechism helps us know what this means for us. Question and answer number 94. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? Answer, that I, not wanting to endanger my salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. That I rightly know the only true God, trust him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor God with all my heart. In short, that I give up anything rather than go against God's will in any way. You know, avoid all idolatry. Uh, An idol is anything that gains some degree of our allegiance in addition to God, right? The the catechism also defines idolatry this way. It's having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God 
who has revealed himself in his word. So idolatry isn't so much like, hey, God, you're out and this idol is in. Idolatry is about placing something alongside of God in addition to God. It's a both and kind of spiritual religious approach. And in the first commandment, the first word, God is very clearly saying it's either or. It's either or. A great verse in Jonah. uh, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That's stunning. It's just, it's just so, it's either or. It can't be both and. It's what the book of Galatians is all about. It's Jesus plus nothing, right? You can't add anything. It's just what the Lord has done, to, done for us. So again, this was a complete change from all other religious thinking back then. Um, so the problem, you can see, is one of dual allegiance, not like replacing God with something. Actually, the book of James talks about this too. I remember James uh, writes about people being double-minded. He uses that phrase. That's this. It's, it's double-minded, meaning you have a dual allegiance. You got God and all this other stuff too. You, know, you haven't made up your mind about what is first and doing away with everything that's kind of competing with that. And our idols today don't look like the ancient idols. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, little figurines that you keep on your mantle. We're talking about stuff that competes for your allegiance. J.I. Packer describes them well. For us, there are still the great gods, sex, shekels, and stomach, an unholy trinity constituting one god, self, and the other enslaving trio, pleasure, possessions, and position, whose worship is described in 1 John 2.16 as the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions. Football, the firm, Freemasonry, and the family are also gods for some, and indeed the list of other gods is endless. For anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his god. And the claimants for this prerogative are legion. In the matter of life's basic loyalty... Temptation is a many-headed monster. Meaning, there's a whole lot comp- competing for our, our loyalty. You know, life's basic loyalty. For what or for whom are you living? That's what we're talking about here. And, and God does not ask us for blind loyalty. Right? This is baked in to the first commandment, the first word. Look, look at what he said. He starts with this, not a command, but, but a statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So before any of the commands begin, God says, hey, remember who I am and remember what I've done for you. Remember that I'm the one God, your good, good father, and that I have already saved you. I have brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So the reason we should be exclusively committed to God alone is that God has acted decisively on our behalf. Before we pledge our allegiance to God alone, we remember the price of deliverance from slavery. A follower of Jesus, you're tracking with me. I hope you're catching the illusions here, right? The deliverance from Egypt involved not just leaving behind the land of Egypt, but the behavior and ways of Egypt as well. The same is true for us as followers of Jesus, right? Jesus 
died on the cross and rose from the dead, not just to save us from the penalty of sin, the land of Egypt. He did that to save us from the power of sin over our lives now, the behavior and the ways of Egypt. Right? That is a huge part of salvation. This is not just getting your ticket punched to heaven. This is becoming who you really are now by the power of God at work within you. And that is a good segue to what this first word, this first commandment means for us as followers of Jesus. Now Jesus said this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So, do the Ten Commandments apply to us as Christians? Absolutely yes. But, but not in the way of, you know, if we don't keep them all, then we're, we're out with God. Or that we have to keep them all to be made right with God. Think back to our communion liturgy when we, when we come in remembrance and communion and hope. When we celebrate communion, we say, uh, we, we come remembering that our Lord Jesus Christ was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood and to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law. So what Jesus did for us is he obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly on our behalf. And the reason the new covenant is new is because he did all the work and we get all the credit. What he did is applied to us. That's justification by faith. Right? So, so the Ten Commandments don't apply to us in the way that we've got to keep them or, or we're out with God. Jesus has kept them perfectly for us and we can live in incredible freedom in Christ knowing that it's done. He did that for us. We're so, we are good. Our relationship with God is solid if we are in Christ. So how do the Ten Commandments apply if they don't apply that way? This is what the Reformers said. The Ten Commandments show us our need of a Savior because when we look at that list, you and I both know that we do not keep that perfectly and we need a lot of help. That's why Jesus came and fulfilled it perfectly on our behalf. The second way it applies to us, it restrains evil in society. If you look at any legal code in the Western world, it is without a doubt very clear that they were based on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have been the single most influential document in the development of modern law. Now, we've used others to the Code of, code of Hammurabi and all that, but, but the Ten Commandments are the biggest one. No historian can argue that. So in a very real way, the Ten Commandments are restraining evil in society today. And then the third use of the law, a, a guide for us as Christ followers in grateful living. If in our Christian faith, a, a situation confronts us, we can look at the Ten Commandments and, and ask, uh, what would be pleasing to God in this situation? And the Ten Commandments would show us that because Jesus came to fulfill them perfectly on our behalf. So that's how the word, 10 words apply generally. But, but the first word specifically, and one, one, one Bible scholar makes a great point about how the first commandment applies to us as followers of Jesus. On Mount Sinai, God came down and said, make me number one in your life and have no other gods. On the Mount of Transfiguration, 
God came down, pointed at Jesus, and said, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now think about how extraordinary that is. The God of the universe on Mount Sinai said, worship nobody but me. Listen to what I'm saying, worship me alone. Then on the Mount of Transfiguration, he pointed at Jesus and said, now listen to him. Listen to him. That's absolutely amazing. This is God saying, hey, listen to Jesus because this is my pull out all the stops effort to reach you, to show you how much I love you, to demonstrate how badly I want you to come back to me. Listen to him. Don't listen to other voices. Listen to him. See, on this side of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the first commandment means we should give to Christ alone the worship he is due. For Jesus is, according to the Bible, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So for, for Christians, the, the first commandment means this. Look to Jesus alone. Turn to Jesus alone. Trust in Jesus alone. Follow Jesus alone. I mean, Jesus said it himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's an exclusive claim. But so was the first commandment. You know, I am the Lord your God who led you out of the land of Egypt, delivered you from slavery. Worship me alone. The first commandment was exclusive. The claims of Jesus are exclusive. Our life and salvation, our real life in this world, and real salvation, a newness of life, are found in Christ alone. And he is more than enough. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? Father, as we think about the 10 words that you gave Moses for the Israelites and that still very much apply to us, please help us. God, pour out your spirit on us. Make us to be like Jesus in all of this. Help us to look at ourselves first before looking outward and judging other people or something. But God, show us what these mean for us. Thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you that we can turn to you. We can humble ourselves and come home to you because of what you've done, Lord, in your life and your death and your resurrection. Uh, help us uh, either over or around any barrier that stands between us and you. Uh, help us, Lord. Help us turn to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's take a little time to ask those three questions that we've been uh, asking all of us to consider after uh, a message. How is God getting your attention? What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? Uh, holding in our hearts and minds that th the goal of being a Christian is to have a life that looks increasingly like Jesus' life. 
to have our life look like Jesus was living our life in our place, becoming more Jesus-shaped. So in that spirit, please consider those questions.